Well, we're back. Um, what do you have planned? I know some of you, you're planning to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. Uh, how many of you, you still have Christmas shopping to do? I know that I do, and uh, I have some gifts uh, that I'm thinking of to give to my family my friends. Uh, some of you, you're looking forward to the uh, family um, getting together. Um, maybe your extended family, not only your immediate family. And I'm Hope sure you that you're preparing sermon. a menu. You're going to look at enjoying some great food. Maybe you're going to stay home. You're going to watch some Christmas movies. Uh, we at our house, we love to do karaoke. Uh, we have karaoke microphones. And so uh, we make that a tradition to sing and just be a part of uh, doing something like that and celebrating. Um, maybe some of you are going to vacation somewhere else. Uh, you're going to go on a little adventure. I know it's kind of hard to vacation right now, but some of you, I know, are planning on doing that, uh, maybe not going too far away and enjoying your time. Or maybe some of you, you're going to volunteer. You're going to pack gifts. You're going to pass food for uh, relief right now. And uh, can I share with you, all of these things are great things to do during Christmas holidays. But these wonderful things can also be distractions that get us sidetracked from the real focus of Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong. These things are not bad. They're actually very good. But it can interfere with the most important purpose, and that is worship, focusing our attention on the reason for the season. You know, there was a true story that was told of a very successful businessman who came home one day, and he was tired at the end of that day. So as he was eating dinner with his wife and his seven-year-old son, uh, his son kept saying, Dad, you promised that you would play with me. Well, the man said, uh, son, let me finish my dinner and we'll see what happens. After dinner, he was so exhausted, so tired, that he sat on the couch and he opened up his newspaper. He was going to read that. But the seven-year-old boy came up to him and kept pleading with him, Dad, you promised. You promised that you would play with me. The man said, I know, son, but I'm tired. I'm exhausted. All I want to do is sit on this couch and veg a little. But the seven-year-old boy kept pressing the issue. He kept pleading with his dad, come play with me, come play with me. The man, angry and irritated, thought up an idea. The newspaper he had in his hand actually showed an advertisement on one side of a huge map of the world with all the different cities of the world. And so he had an idea. He ripped up that map in front of his son. And he said, son, I want you to take some tape and I want you to try to put this map together. And after you finish putting this map together perfectly, then I'll go play with you. What a jerky thing to say. But the father was thinking to himself, this is a great idea because he won't be back and I'll have the whole night just to veg and spend on my own. Well, a little while later, the boy came back with a smile on his face and a map all taped up perfectly. He looked at his dad and said, Dad, I finished the map. The father was so astonished that he looked at the, the son and said, How did you do this? And the seven-year-old boy said, with all confidence, Well, that was easy, Dad. On the other side of the map was a picture of a big man. And I knew that if I taped up the man, that the world would be okay. Isn't that awesome? If I focus on the man, then everything else will fall into place. Well, the man learned a great lesson that day, and he went off and he played with his son. You know, this morning, 
I want us to learn that very same lesson. Because this season, we can get busy with so many different things. We can be tempted to chase so many different distractions. The what of Christmas, what to get. The when of Christmas, when do I do it? The where of Christmas, where do I go? The how of Christmas, how do I do that? The what, when, where, and how of Christmas, instead of really focusing on the who of Christmas. And if we don't focus on the big picture of who Jesus is, then all the other peripheral pursuits of the what, when, where, and how will be vain fragments that really don't have any eternal meaning. Well, this morning, our focus will be on the big picture, the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes everything we hold dear, everything that we celebrate this Christmas, fall into place. So let's turn to a book in the Bible that answers the very question of who Jesus is. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Now, I know Matthew, Mark, and Luke give the Christmas narrative, and you might think, well, John doesn't give a Christmas narrative, but I beg to differ with you. He just gives it in a different perspective. John chapter 1, here we see John vividly paints for us this Jesus in three-word pictures. Now, these pictures we will combine to form one glorious Christmas portrait that we can focus our lives on. Now, if you're taking notes, uh, write this down. Here's the first picture. Jesus as the Logos. Jesus as the Logos. Uh, let's look uh, with, uh, with me at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, I want us to stop right there. So before the wise men, before the shepherds, before the manger, even before the baby, even before the virgin conception in the womb, John's gospel starts earlier where he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, let me unpack this. First of all, if you're taking notes, write down that John refers to Jesus as the word. The word is translated logos in Greek. And this was John's favorite title for Jesus, logos. Now, where does, what does this mean? Why the word? You know, it was my birthday actually a couple weeks ago, December the 2nd. And in it, I turned 52. I know I don't look 52, right? But I turned 52 years of age. Now, my father is an extreme introvert. And he's that Asian dad, strong and silent, and never talks. And all throughout my life, I, from the, the moment I can remember, he actually never did talk. He didn't talk much to me. Even today on the phone, he speaks to me for an average of 10 seconds. My mom can talk to me for hours. My dad talks in seconds. And he talks to me for a very short time, never more than 10 seconds. But you know what's interesting? Every birthday, he sends me the most encouraging birthday card. It is, dare I say, one of the sweetest words that have ever come from my dad. The most thoughtful words. He even puts a prayer in it. And sometimes I get all sentimental when I read those because my dad, who talks for 10 seconds, when he gives me a card, writes such a profound card of love and encouragement. You see, it's in his card, in his words, that he communicates perfectly what he wants me to know. It's the perfect expression. 
You see, Jesus, the Lagos, is God's word. He is God's fullest, most perfect expression to us. Colossians 1.9 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Michael Card wrote a, a song about the incarnation. Can we put it up? And it's what the Logos is all about. He says this, You and me, we use so very many clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. But when the Father's wisdom wanted to communicate his love, he spoke it in one final perfect word. And so the Father's fondest thoughts took on flesh and bone. He spoke the living luminous word at once his will was done. And so the transformation that in man had been unheard took place in God the Father as he spoke his final word. He spoke the incarnation and then so was born the Son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. You see, the incarnation is God's fullest, final word. That is why Jesus says in the Gospels, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is the most perfect expression of who God the Father is. When God the Father desired to communicate his love, his hope, his wishes, his will to humanity, he clothed the Lagos in flesh. It says in verse 14 of our text, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, John refers to Jesus as the word because Jesus is the fullest, most perfect expression of God. Not only that, but secondly, uh, in this idea of Lagos, Jesus refers, or John refers to Jesus as eternal God. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, cults take this passage and they try to twist it to teach that Jesus was the first to be created before anything else. He was the first creation. But they misunderstand that in the Greek, there's no definite article, the. So the Greek rendering of what John is saying is, in beginning was Lagos. Do you get that? In the definite expanse of timeless existence existed Lagos. In the beginning which had no beginning, there was Lagos. In an existence with no beginning and no ending, in the ever-present now, Lagos is. Now, he was with God, verse 1 says. That literally means the idea of face-to-face -face intimacy. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. So in eternity, God the Son had an intimate relationship with God the Father. And in verse 1, it says he was God. Not only was he with God, he was God. The most categorical statement of Jesus' deity in all the Bible. Not only does John refer to Jesus as the Word, not only does John refer to Jesus as eternal God, but thirdly, John refers to Jesus as creator God. In verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Have you ever thought about that? 
It's incredible. It's mind-boggling that Jesus, the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God, he not only existed in the beginning, he was also the one who created everything that existed. Now, that's important because during this Christmas season, we see Jesus as a baby born in Bethlehem's manger. In the Gospels, we read about him as the prophet who traveled preaching and healing. We see him as the priest who sacrificed himself on the cross. Those are all the Gospels' portrayal of Jesus as the perfect man. But do we see him as John sees him right now, as the transcendent creator of all things? You see, that brings a profound dimension to our understanding of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17 says uh, what John says in a little bit different way. Listen to this. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine Jesus not only created all things, Jesus also sustains all things. Verse 17, in him all things hold together. You know, Abraham uh, Morrison, the former president of the New York Academy of Sciences, wrote a book called Reasons Why I Believe in God. And I love this book because it brings us some ideas. It's, he says in this book, consider the rotation of the earth. Our globe spins on its axis at a rate of 1,000 miles per hour. If this were slowed down, our days and nights would be 10 times as long. Vegetation would freeze in the long night or it would burn up in the long day. Consider the heat of the sun, 12,000 degrees at surface temperature. If the sun gave off a little less of its radiation, we would freeze to death. If the sun gave off a little more of its radiation, then we would burn up. Consider the slant of the earth. This enables us to have four seasons. If it were at a slightly different angle, all the vapors from the oceans would ice over the continents. Consider the crust of the earth. If it were a little thinner, meteor, meteors that burn up in space would plummet the earth to oblivion. Consider the moon. If it did not remain at its exact distance, the ocean tides would completely engulf all landmass. You see, all things have been created by him, and in him all things hold together. John MacArthur gave a Bible study um, on a certain passage in the book of Colossians, and he uses <coughs> a scientific idea, and I thought it was so good. I'm no scientist, so I'm going to use John MacArthur's um, teaching. He says, consider nuclear science. All substances are constructed from three particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. These particles are the basic building blocks of all matter. Does, does this remind you of high school, right? Protons and neutrons make up the nucleus of an atom. Each proton carries a positive charge of electricity. Neutrons don't carry any electrical charge, and scientists don't know why. So the problem is, science states that like charges of electricity repel each other. Scientists know protons should not live side by side in the nucleus of an atom because the charges would naturally repel each other. So scientists are puzzled then why protons don't blast each other. 
Kalam's law of mutual repulsion between objects is hard at work in the nucleus of every atom trying to shatter the atom from within. George Gemmell, the physicist at George Washington University, put it this way. I love this. Every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits. You know why? Because there is a second force in the nucleus of an atom that fights against the force that wants to split it and blow it up. And the second force holds it together. What is the second force? Well, physicist Charles Darrow put it this way. These nuclei have no right to live at all. They should never have been created. And even if they were created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet there they are. And they're everything. Here's what he says. Some inflexible inhibition is relentlessly holding them together. This is that second force that scientists simply call because they don't have an explanation for it. They call it nuclear glue. Right? Darrow says an inflexible inhibition. Scientists call it nuclear glue. You know what this whole principle is called? It's called the Colossus Principle. It's not the Colossus Principle. It's the Colossians Principle. Colossians 1.17, all things have been created by him, and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus is the Logos. Now, the second picture we want to see is Jesus as the light. Let's look in verse 4. Read it with me. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Drop down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, here's my question. Why would the eternal, sovereign, creator of all things come to mankind as light? Two things I want you to see. First of all, light exposes need. Have you ever been caught in complete darkness? I remember in my college days, I was serving at a special needs retreat. And it was actually a retreat for deaf people. It was a chance where inner city deaf teens could come together and they could socialize. And it was an amazing time where we shared the gospel with them. And it was about a week type of camp. Like, so for one week. Well, all these hundreds of deaf uh, teens came one night, and as we were conducting that camp, and it was at night, all the power went out in the camp. And it was chaos for several hours. Imagine no light, only our flashlights to follow us around. The one thing that happened when the lights went out is people started screaming. Uh, noises started happening. And remember, these are deaf people, so it doesn't bother them if all these things are happening. But it, it drove us crazy. We were fearing what is going on. And even our flashlights, we couldn't tell. And for several hours, we were in the dark. But then suddenly, the lights came on and everything was exposed. And I, I, don't, I, I can't share with you because this is not an appropriate time to share the kind of things that were happening that we caught when the lights came on. But uh, suffice it to say, it was some very bad things. And things were going seriously wrong. You see, the reason Jesus came to this world is because something was seriously wrong with all of his creation. You know, Wilson gave a three-week series on his uh, children's book, but he also shared some very important thoughts. 
And let me review them just for a little bit. The Bible explains that all of creation has been infected by a spiritual pandemic called sin. That sin has infected and affected everything in a world that was originally created good by God. And this disease brought death to all creation. Sin's pandemic makes everyone sinners. Do you know what we call this reality? We call it the fall. I was watching ABC News a while back, and an ABC anchor, head anchor, George Stephanopoulos, uh, was speaking, and he was commenting on the evil, all the myriad of evil that we see in this world. And this is what he said, and it completely blew me away, because for all intents and purposes, I don't believe that uh, George Stephanopoulos has ever said that he was a Christian. This is what he said. The only reasonable explanation that makes any sense is the Bible's assertion about the fall, the fall of this world and the fall of man. Now, again, I don't think George Stephanopoulos has ever shared that he's a Christian, but he says the only explanation that makes any sense is the fall. You see, the reason Jesus came as light is to reveal the dark reality of the world's fall, of humanity's fall. We are in desperate need. John chapter 3, would you put it up? says it this way in verse 19. This is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Do you get this? The light exposes that we are lost. We're addicted. We're sinful in our fallen state. And we hate being exposed. We hate the exposure that the light brings. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us vulnerable in sin as sinners. And so what do we do? Well, John says we scurry back into the darkness. But Jesus is the light that shines into our darkness and reveals our fallen state and our sinful condition. He reveals to humanity their need of him. Light exposes need. But you know what else light does? Light encourages hope. You know, light has always brought hope. In a sunrise, sunlight brings hope of a new day, doesn't it? Light at the end of a tunnel brings hope that the darkness will be gone. It won't be here forever. And I love what the gospel writer Matthew says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16. He quotes the prophet Isaiah about Jesus coming to this earth. He says it this way, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, hope of a new day. Hope that the dark reality will be over. I think the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, says it the best. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It's because of Jesus that hope can happen. Jesus as the light. When you shine a light on anything, it illuminates the need that is there, and it also manifests that there needs to be a solution. And this is our third picture that I want you to behold, the solution. Jesus as the lamb. Okay? Jesus as the lamb. 
the eternal God, creator of all things, came to this fallen earth to shine a light on our desperate need. Why? Why? Because he wanted to meet that need in order to fix that which was broken. Look in verse 29 in our text. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Drop down to verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. What John the Baptist states is so very, very significant. Because Israel as a nation was following God's law of animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. When God chose Israel as his people, he required as law the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. Now you might ask, why? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says it perfectly. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, the blood of animals was shed for the forgiveness of sins. You might say, well, that sounds a little weird. Why? I'll explain it to you. But it's important that the blood of animals had to be done constantly in Israel because it couldn't finally, fully forgive sins. It was just a temporary fix. It was a temporary thing that temporarily forgave sins. So why do it at all? Why do it again and again incessantly? Why have a law that temporarily satisfies? Because, and this is John, John uh, chapter 1's uh, statement in verse 29 and verse 35 and 36. Because the law foreshadows something greater. Imagine a Hebrew priest starting his day at the temple. The first person comes in with a sacrifice. He lays it on the altar and he cuts its throat. The blood spurts out and covers his robes. As more and more people come, they bring their sacrifices. As time passes, thousands upon thousands of animals are sacrificed by that one priest alone. And as the multitudes come to obey God's law, you have to ask the question, how much blood was shed for a mere temporary forgiveness of sins? I wonder what was in the mind of that Hebrew priest as he surveyed the bloody mess all around him, as he smelled the stench of animal blood. I'm sure there's three things he understood. He understood the enormous offense that God viewed man's sin. He realized that the blood of animals could never fully forgive sin. And he must have longed for a sacrifice that could permanently take away sin. That is why what John says is so significant. Jesus is what the law of animal sacrifice foreshadowed. Jesus is the greater offering foreshadowed in those symbols. It pointed to him. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, not even for a thousand years. He takes it away for all eternity. In the person of Jesus, you are fully and finally and forever forgiven of sins, and you are made a righteous new creation. So what does that tell us? that the solution is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The cure is Jesus. He came to this world to fix your broken, fallen condition. Can I get an amen? Now listen to me. I wanna, I wanna close with this. In Luke chapter two, we know the Christmas story. We've heard it myriads of times. 
But let me point you to verse 8, which you've heard a myriad of times. It says this, And there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. Now, what is the sign of the Savior? Here it is, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What was the sign to the shepherds that this was the Savior? What was it? Did you know that the custom of the shepherds at that time when they birthed Passover lambs for sacrifice would be that they would wrap these lambs in cloths, that they would swaddle the lambs, that they kept in caves, laying in mangers. You see, the lamb had to be swaddled. Now, you might say, well, why? Because lambs had to be without blemish, Deuteronomy says, for acceptance as Passover sacrifices. So they were swaddled in strips of cloth so they couldn't cut themselves in the caves, so they couldn't bruise themselves and um, therefore create a blemish. They were wrapped to ensure that they would be unblemished. You see, the shepherds understood the cultural significance of the swaddled Passover lamb. They were not unfamiliar with this idea, but I'm sure that they were surprised by the sign the angel was giving, that this was a person swaddled like a Passover lamb, in a cave, in a manger. You see, here the gospel writer's way of saying, this was the gospel writer's way of saying that Messiah Jesus came to be Savior by sacrificing himself for the sins of the world. The sign is, baby Jesus came as the Lamb of God. Amen? This Christmas, please don't view the Christmas story as some cute, feel-good idea intended to conjure up sentimental ideas. Please don't think of Jesus as some helpless, hapless baby born in Bethlehem's manger. I want you to see Jesus as he really is. Jesus is the logos, the perfect expression of God's love from all eternity. Jesus is the light that shines in the midst of utter darkness, that provides warning and a hope. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and makes you a new creation. Do you see the Christmas portrait this morning? Do you get the picture? I want us to respond by way of singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Because this message was given to you so that you might focus your attention once again, not on all the peripheral things of Christmas, but you might focus your attention on the King of kings and Lord of lords. And by doing so, that you might worship him, as is our appropriate response. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the word that was sent to us, your full and final word. And we thank you that he was born to us, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray that we would never lose the wonder, the excitement, the grandeur of who you are. We thank you, Jesus, for being born to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.